This episode of CCA is brought to you by Stan and their exclusive new series, Everything I Know About Love. Based on the best-selling memoir by Dolly Alderton, if you love the bold type and younger, then this series is for you. Streaming now, only on Stan. Everyone is so afraid that we're trying to turn men into women. And it's like, no, we've been trying to turn women into men for how many years? It's like there has to be an understanding that there are benefits to all of this. Gender has always intrigued me. If we talk about curiosity, it's like, what the hell is going on? How did this happen? Why are people responding in the way that they are? It makes both a lot of sense and very little, depending on what avenue you're you're coming at it from. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy, and fulfillment along the way. Hello, lovely neighborhood. This week is Men's Health Week from the 13th to the 19th of June. And every year, as you may remember, we dedicate a specific episode to the conversation. Like most international or national awareness weeks, the health and wellness of our men and boys and their specific needs in that context are important every single week and not just right now. But I do find it always helps to have gentle reminders throughout the year, especially for topics like this that can still carry in some cases stigma, tradition, or even a bit of shame. We've had some amazing conversations in the past with fabulous guests about the changing social conceptions of masculinity, the biggest challenges for men's mental health, and how we can better support our boys earlier on in their lives. And I can't think of anyone better to continue those chats this year than clinical psychologist, leading men's mental health researcher, and director of mental health training at Movember, Dr. Zach Seidler. Zach is the ultimate advocate for better understanding men's mental health and masculinity, dedicating his career to helping reduce the staggering rate of male suicide worldwide. I loved hearing in this episode how he approaches that passion from multiple different directions, continuing to see patients one-on-one, to research academically, and work at an executive level at Movember. He has a million things going on, as you can see, so I feel very lucky that he has shared his wisdom and passion with the neighborhood this week. Content warning, we do discuss mental health and suicide in some depth throughout the episode, so please do take care while you're listening and I've listed some resources in the show notes. Please never hesitate to reach out if you do feel like you need help and I hope that this conversation and others like it on the show help you to do so. Zach, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Oh, thank you so much for joining. We've had about six minutes together so far and I feel like we could pretty much finish there. Like you are just already an extraordinary human. I mean, the first reference that we shared was pivot. And if you don't know what that means, then you should just log off the show right now, to be honest. Exactly. I don't think you'll lose that many audience members. Friends is, it's where it's at. It is ubiquitous. It is, you know, the foundation of so many friendships, every joke that I make basically. Really? It is the foundation of society. I agree with you. I agree. We will be I mean, talking we should... about friendship today, no doubt. So yeah. definitely there. And 
we will move our conversation away from exclusively communicating via friends <laughs> references eventually so as not to alienate anyone who, you know, the 1% of society who's not up there with the friends references. <laughs> but this has probably already shown everyone that you're incredibly down to earth despite some pretty impressive titles, achievements and like society-wide changes that you're leading. But just to indulge me, I start every episode before we get into the juice by asking everyone what the most down-to-earth thing is about them because, you know, often you're introduced or preceded by your title and your achievements and it's easy to see this glossy surface through media or social media. So what's something that's really normal or relatable about you? For sure. I try my best, like my whole approach, whether it be as a therapist or a researcher, is constantly to just be the everyman. I don't know how well I do at it, but I swear like a trooper, that always helps. <laughs> That's welcome. Yeah, exactly. I just want to be I just want to be a dude amongst other dudes. And so my day-to-day I think is pretty down to earth. I swim every morning. I love love the ocean. It's my dive therapy. It gets me gets me going. And really, you know, down to earth speaking, I eat the same muesli every morning. Oh, I love this. I'm a hoarder, so I just buy like when it's on sale. I actually went in yesterday to Woolies and my muesli, which I love, is on sale. I'm not going to give it a product placement because they don't deserve it. But they- <laughs> I was going to say you're going to give it a little a spruik. Is it a Movember like it's, partnership product? It's not yet, but it will be after this. And uh, TBC. Yeah, the muesli is all shaped in moustaches. I went and I just bought like 30 packets of it and the Woolies guy came up to me and he goes, it's you. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, I knew someone was was taking all of it. I'm like, I'm a doomsday prepper. What do you want? You know, yeah, been through I pandemic. preppers. I need muesli. <laughs> muesli and toilet paper. That was all you. Yeah, I'm understanding everything. All, all the jigsaw puzzle pieces are coming together. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, even the fact that you use the phrase. I am the everyman. I love that a lot because <laughs> I think that that is, you know, the every person is when you're more relatable and people can look at parts of your life and go, oh, like even though you're a director and you're doing all these huge things, you know, you like your muesli. And if you don't have your muesli, like the day is a disaster. Everyone can relate to that. Exactly. Yeah. I'm just going about my day, doing as much as I possibly can. Friendship and the sunshine, like little things just just make my make my day for sure. I'm just very lucky to get to do what I do every day. But for all intents and purposes, I'm just average Zach hanging out. <laughs> average is not when the I word. Take these glasses off, you'd be very surprised. I mean everything dude, pain. put them back on. That's too much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just like put those away right now. <laughs> We are not going to be able to continue this. It'll just be too no, much. No. Maybe at the end we can we can build yeah, up to that, yeah. but just that was too soon. I'm just, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> it's interesting also that a lot of people in your position are so surprisingly humble and relatable, but often I think use the word luck and lucky a lot in the retelling of their story. Mm. Partly because I'm sure there have been very fortuitous sliding doors moments or people or timing or all those kinds of things. But I think sometimes we attribute too much maybe Mm. in the journey to luck because I'm sure there's been a lot of angst and hard work and forks in the road Mm. and tears and, you know, a, a lot of challenge also along the way. But also twists and turns, like very few people wake up as a five year old and go, I want to work on men's mental health. Like that's what I want to do. So the first section is your way TA where we kind of go back to, you know, childhood Zach and trace through all those chapters to remind everyone that finding your ultimate purpose is very twisty and turny. Mm. It's never what you expect and that 
it does take more than luck, like a, a, a big melting pot of lots of different circumstances to end up where you are. Mm. So take us back to the very beginning. What were you like as a child? Inception. What were your first jobs? <laughs> <laughs> Gifted, <laughs> gifted from day dot. Day, from day dot. I might throw some some spanners here because I have very much somewhat had a plan for quite a while, <gasps> and not having plan B from what I was probably around fifteen, sixteen when I decided how this was going to go. Not specifically exactly where I am, but I knew the trajectory about where I wanted to go. And while I am very lucky about the people that I've met, about the you know relationships that have led to where I am, about the things that have fallen into my lap because I am a straight white male. I'm not in, under any, yeah, I'm, I'm fully aware of the fact that I have some power and privilege on my side. So I try to give that back when, you know, best I can. But most importantly, it started out, I guess, if we're to look at why people become psychologists as well, I had a lot of female friends growing up mm-hmm. and I was always intrigued as to why they spoke and related to each other so differently to my football friends, for instance. And so the ability to mold in different situations was something that I realized I could do. I can be a bloke if I need to be. I don't really enjoy it that much. I much prefer <laughs> I much prefer deep, deep, deep chats with my friends. And so I yeah, I realized probably when I was, you know, eleven or twelve that I was, you know, really keen on you know, drama and music, which led me into female-dominated places. And then I was always inquisitive and curious. I love stories. And I think that uh, lots of people, psychologists don't say this, but I'm nosy as hell. And so <laughs> I think that that's now I get to be paid for it. And so I'm um, <laughs> juicy. juicy. What's next? Yeah. I'm just a big gossip, yeah, seriously, basically. No, but I would never tell anyone anything that happens in session. But for my own nosiness, it's great. But I love stories. I love, you know, the fiction that I read growing up was always, I'm not into fantasy or sci-fi. I don't understand reality. How do I have time for dragons? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Like all my mates were watching and reading that shit and I was like, no, not for me. So I got really deep into like character stuff. I was always you know, what comes next? How is someone going to respond to something? What, you know, really means, you know, and, and derives purpose for them. And so, I, I, you know, going through that process and growing up, I've got three siblings, there's four of us, real loud, real competitive. It was a lot of watching because I'm mm. third and, uh, you know, people talk about birth order and, and the importance of it, but I've got two older brothers. And, and so I got to learn a lot from just watching yeah. and, and seeing how things were, were going. And so, when it came down to choosing a degree, you know, I didn't want to to do law. I didn't necessarily want to do medicine. I thought it was a safe middle ground um, to pick psychology. And it was also, you know, something that I'd spoken to various people about because the idea of being able to spend fleeting moments with people who are willing to open up to you and you have the ability, hopefully, after 10 years of training, to offer them a semblance of care and compassion. You know, fairness is such a strong value for me. I'm realizing that more and more in my old age. And uh, <laughs> that ability. It shows. You can't see the I mean. idea. <laughs> I'm waiting, salt and pepper. But that, that idea of offering someone a bit of respite and you know, people always say this whenever I tell them I'm a psychologist. First, they go, are you reading my mind? And I go, yes, nothing's going on in there. 
Tumbleweeds. <laughs> Seriously. Tumbleweeds. Tumbleweeds. And secondly, how do you cope with listening to depressing content all the time? And I'm like, I've never seen it like that. They are coming to me and it's such a unique space where my desires, my needs are not in the room, you know? You go into any friendship it's always someone else has, you know, you're going to play back and forth with each other. Oh, I did that with my girlfriend and this happened, that happened. In therapy, it's purely an hour of, of me, you know, being hopefully just a, a sounding board of sorts and, and of hopefully some strategic, you know, coping strategies or whatever it may be. But it's such a, such a privilege to be able to be in that space that I'm glad, you know, to be able to, to work with someone in such an empowering way. It doesn't feel depressing to me. Working towards getting them better, knowing that everyone's on their own doing nothing about it—that's depressing. Yeah. <laughs> so hopefully, you know, and being a therapist is only, as we'll discuss, only you know one part of my my day to day. But yeah, the men stuff, which we'll talk about, gender has always intrigued me. Like it's, you know, mm. if we talk about curiosity, it's like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> what is yeah, that seriously? whole situation? How did this happen? <laughs> Why are people responding in the way that they are? It makes both a lot of sense and very little, depending on what avenue yeah. you're, you're coming at it from. So it's, you know, so endlessly fascinating to me that it was a no-brainer. And when people are like, oh, my God, you're, you're a specialist. Look at you specialize in men. I'm like, it's 50 fucking percent of the population. What are you yeah. talking about? The fact that it's a specialty is a problem. Yes, that's a really interesting way to look at it. And just something that really jumped out at me just now, which is, you know, the fact that so many people kind of, you do think when you think of a psychologist, you think straight away about the compassion fatigue and the challenge and how much you wear other people's stuff on you. But the fact that that's not even your immediate reaction at all no. is the whole crux of this show and the idea of seizing your yay mm -hmm. is that what one person finds incredibly challenging, in fact, sometimes their worst nightmare is someone else's best day of their life. And that's how you find your thing. It's that it doesn't feel hard for you. I'm sure there are mm. parts oh, yeah. that are hard, but the essence of finding what your purpose is in this world is that when you wake up in the morning, you know, you're excited about that thing. It doesn't feel heavy like it might for someone else. And maybe if what you're doing every day does feel hard and awful and depressing, maybe that isn't the place for you. And it's the lightness that you find when you find your your path in the world that I think shows that you're on the right track. I love that so much because I'm like, yeah, it shouldn't feel like that for you because that's where you're meant to be. Exactly. Are you the therapist? <laughs> Why, yes, actually I am. <laughs> no, I'm very much about and my friends will always attest to this. I'm very irritating because I constantly shake up the status quo. Like if they complain week on week about how shit their job is, like I will push them endlessly yeah, to get you out. You are not having a bar yeah, of that. No, no way. My friends, my family, it doesn't matter. It's like get out. What are you doing? Like and someone said to me the other day, you know, because I asked, I go, what's your, what's your dream job? What do you want to do? What could you, you know, if you had endless resources, whatever it was, what would you do? And they go, that's a dumb question. And they go, what's your dream job? I go, what I'm doing right now. And they're like, ugh, yes. disgusting. <laughs> Get out no, of my seriously. face. <laughs> and it's irritating and it shouldn't be irritating that that is what my response is. It's like it should be a model. We should be striving for waking up in the morning and being excited and work shouldn't be some side hustle, you know, that pays mm. the bills. But, um, yeah, from, from very early on I wanted complete control of my life. So I have no fucking time for, for hierarchies. I have no time for yeah. corporate culture. Um, and now I have the ability because apparently I'm an expert at something to rock up, <laughs> to rock up at law firms 
and to just grill partners about how they go about well-being and they have to listen because they're paying me. So it's awesome. I mean, if you had come to our law firm, I might still be there. That would have been really useful if the timing had aligned a little bit differently. They're changing. Times are changing. Yeah, times are changing. But that's also, you know, another thing that why is that a stupid question? Is that not the first question you should ask is like, aside from any obligation or financial concerns, what would you do? That should be kind of the driving question that you ask first. Mm. It's yes, obviously hypothetical, but like that's where you should be aiming for is what would you do if you had no limits and then work on removing the limits or lessening the limits so you can actually get there. But before we do move on to how it developed from choosing psychology mm. and and expanding beyond, you know, your typical psychologist private practice or whatever, you know, people go into, it's interesting that you did find this so early and perhaps in a time where, you know, now men's mental health and mental health in general is coming along much more rapidly than perhaps any other generation. But you know, I'm thinking of you at Mariah College, being the drama guy, sitting with your female peers and being curious and asking all those kinds of questions like well ahead of your time and well ahead of everyone else understanding what you were doing. Sometimes when you are ahead of your time, like you get bullying or mm. you get sidelined or you get questions or people think you're weird because mm. you're too sensitive or, you know, the world often doesn't catch up with you straight away. Was it hard for you to continue with that curiosity at a time where people were like, like, dude, stop asking questions. Mm. We're all just getting drunk and like pashing each mm. other, you know, mm. <laughs> or like we're being football jocks. Like high school is a weird time to be so in tune with storytelling and stuff when no one else is really into that. Mm. Yeah, boy, what a time. <laughs> <laughs> like do you remember that fondly or was uh, it no, hard? I, I didn't get bullied, thankfully, really. Again, six foot two, I can run. I have like certain traits that meant that I could get away with being a weirdo. Right. Which I'm very thankful for. And I also am so thankful for all the women in my life who allowed me that space because most of the men were very uncomfortable in those conversations. And so I didn't yeah. get to cut my teeth in those chats. Whereas really going, you know, in depth with various female friends along the way, because it was their norm as well. And so, mm. you know, while they questioned my sexuality, which is a very interesting <laughs> norm, which is like no way a straight man gives a shit about this. Yeah, you're the gay best friend. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. We, we can talk about being, you know, put in the friend zone endlessly, which is heaps <laughs> Oh, man. Dude, I can't even, yeah, I can't even imagine. It's a, it's a place to be. Everyone needs to just handle it. Just hang out there. You are Ross, dude. <laughs> Told you. Yeah, I never really felt like I fit in because I was just like on the fringe of every group. Mm. And that's because I wanted more. I constantly wanted more from everyone and I still do in many ways and it's probably exhausting for my friends because it's <laughs> it's something that I, I'm constantly pushing for, for more depth. You know, if I go to a Bucks party, it's just, it's, it's so full on for them. I can only imagine. But like, it's like, why? I'll, I'll just sit there in the corner and be like, why are there strippers? What is, how did this happen? What is going on? Let's psychoanalyze. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, this, I don't, this is the thing. Trend. Everyone's like, oh, you, you analyze everything. I don't sit there and judge people by any means, but it's yeah. just like, I want, I want, yeah, I want to get to the core of like, what are we doing? Why, why <laughs> did this happen? Why are we chugging shots of a naked woman? Like, how did, no, not happening. And so, yeah. so many people are so comfortable not shaking shit up. I think that the status quo has gotten us in a lot of hot water, you know, mm. and there aren't enough people who are willing to 
and I think that that's where I got my my courage from in many ways. It's it's kind of how I go about my therapy and my work day to day, which is just, you know, blunt, <laughs> extremely yeah. blunt, and and I'm just straight to the point because I just don't have time for unnecessary bureaucracy. You know, I'll always question people's insecurities around various things and always push for motivation and self-belief because I think that we just constantly get in our own ways. And so Mm. the greatest skill that my training has given me is seeing things from multiple angles. And so childhood all the way up until, God, 23, 24 was just what is happening and and how Mm. am I supposed to fit in here? And it's only really in in retrospect that I'm I'm aware of how uncomfortable I was and how kind of out of control it all seemed. I was really anxious for, for a long time, mainly because, again, I just didn't feel like I had control over things. It's like when you're at school mm. and there are exams and it's like everyone's telling me what to do. Everyone's, you know, it's happening to me. Mm. And so implicitly along the way, I think I forged a career where no one can tell me what to do. I'm yeah. sorry to my various rockers <laughs> along the way, but they know that I'm unmanageable. and I think that's why I bring that up because I think when you are earlier than you know the average person in finding what you really love particularly if you're earlier than society Mm -hmm. in flying the flag for whatever cause or speciality or whatever that is I think it's often forgotten that if you do it early and you're leading the way that you face a lot of no one else getting what you're doing Mm -hmm. and it's not super comfortable and you do face a lot of like it's not cool until it's cool. Now it's cool and now you've done the work to get to the cool bit but all the way along the way you face a lot of people being like, what is this conversation you're trying to have with me? Like I just want to do shots off the stripper, like shut up. The weird thing is is that it's now almost at the rate where I I need to shut it down. Because I'll be at a party and people will hunt me down. And that's just like, you know, and it's always the the drunk dude who suddenly has to, wants to tell me his whole life story. And it's like, I don't, it's Saturday. This isn't happening. And now I want to do the shots of the strip. Like, leave me alone. (laughs) Let me have fun. But the the idea of, you know, I've thought about this as well that, oh, it was a pure luck that I've ended up in this, you know, now that there's a mental health boom and everyone is paying attention, especially to the, you know, male suicide epidemic that's going on at the moment. It didn't feel, again, purposeful, but I think there was something just going on behind the scenes where you're getting enough reinforcement slowly but surely growing to the point where you're like, oh, shit, I've got to double down here. This mm-hmm. seems to be where it's at. And that's just, again, that's just being in the right place at the, the right time, but also knowing what to leverage to your advantage. And mm-hmm. I realized, again, that the being blunt and straight to the point while having a base of research expertise underneath, but being able to communicate it like, God, this status quo when it comes to scientific communication, everyone is so fucking boring. Not even boring, just like cannot get it out in a way that your everyday person is going to understand. So Mm. it's always been that I kind of fall into the motivational coach situation where I'm just like, (laughs) we can do better. There is more out there for all of us. And whether it's, you know, go and hug your dad, whether it's go and, you know, have a chat with your mates about what's going on for you. I will always push people and myself for more. Mm. Well, I think it's, you know, a lot of circumstances have led to you being here today, but also perhaps it has been your work that has led to it being, you know, getting to a point where it is cool now. It is much more like perhaps you played a role in how far it's come and how much easier it is now for you to have those conversations. I think a lot of it is probably due to 
your career up until this point. And we're so, so lucky to have you here for Men's Health Week because you have become an expert in this area working with an incredible range of organisations and have not only, you know, had your own journey to a PhD in psychology, but have expanded that to translating it to the everyman so that they can understand. It's one thing to be an expert and have so much knowledge, but if you, as you said, if you can't share that to the general population who don't have a PhD in psychology, they're not going to listen. So before we dive into sort of how that happened and what you do now, I think it's important in this episode in particular to sort of be a bit more blunt about the landscape. And, you know, the show is very yay focused and joy focused, but I think there are times where the platform needs to be used for awareness of some of the harder statistics that are a reality that get in the way of a lot of people's joy. So can you give us a bit of an idea of the landscape for mental health generally, but in relation to men specifically? I know there's a, a Lululemon Global Wellbeing report that came out recently. There are some extreme, extremely confronting statistics about men's suicide, mm. which is something you've been really passionate about that I think because it's not spoken about as much, there still is a lot of stigma around it. The every person probably doesn't know just how, how dire it is. Mm. So, yeah. For sure. So we lose seven men a day in Australia to suicide and the world over it's a man a minute. Those statistics, you know, have not really moved in the past decade or so, which is really worrying given the amount of funds and attention that have been placed on this. The reasons for suicide are extremely complex and this is something that, you know, we can. it's a black box that we continue to try to, to unpack. But, you know, in interviews with people who have attempted and survived and, you know, I've, I've done lots of research with, with men across, you know, whether it be Indigenous men, so many different groups of young and older guys. Every interview is totally different. You can see themes, mm. but the key things that continuously come out are around situational stresses. So we talk about depression and anxiety, you know, and we've got extremely high rates and COVID has not helped by any means. And, you know, it's you know, one in six to one in eight men are, are, are dealing with depression and anxiety day to day. Those numbers are undoubtedly underestimating the reality yeah. because men do not come forward necessarily. They don't necessarily understand what they're experiencing. They won't label it as such. And it looks really different in many men. And so it will look like externalizing symptoms, which is to say anger, aggression, irritability, substance misuse, things mm-hmm. that are you know, boys being boys or men behaving badly are actually often cries for help. And we as a society are not very good at responding to those Mm. because they're so difficult, you know? They're so difficult to empathise with as well. And so if we look at depression and anxiety, those, you know, are obviously going to be indicators for suicide, but we've also got those situational stresses which are and have been inflamed because of covid and we've got financial distress. Mm. Relationship breakdown is huge. The rates of suicide up to six months post-relationship breakdown are the highest that you're going to find amongst men. And really? men who are divorced, widowed, or you know, have just been through a, a breakup or a single, um, you know, the suicide rate compared to those men who are married, you know, is much, much higher. So wow. and that's in comparison to women where being single or, or breaking up can be a protective factor. And that says a lot about the emotional burden that men you know, are putting on women in, in heterosexual relationships as well for their emotional labor, which we can, mm. we can talk about later on. So we've got a landscape where we've got men who are struggling in ways that they may not understand. They're dealing with 
job loss with finances, with being a protector and provider, this traditional masculinity, and they will not ever be able to attain this standard of masculinity that they're seeking because it's unattainable. It's just so, so impossible to reach in many ways. And so the way that they are finding an outlet is often in extremely maladaptive ways. Mm. And so that's why I think we see rates of domestic violence that we do. I think that's why we see, you know, drug and alcohol. That's why we see male and male violence. We've just got serious concerns that do not come out in the mental health literature. And I think that it's just look at the bucket overflowing and it's coming out in all of these different other avenues. And so I'm kind of here to shine a light on this stuff and show that we can get onto this earlier if we can find a way for not only men, because there's been a lot of talk about men need to talk more, men need to be more vulnerable, men need to open up, when in fact I think our society needs to do a bit better at at finding space for male vulnerability. You know, we tell men to open up, but are we actually ready to listen? I'm not sure as a society that we're there yet. And so, you know, Brene Brown always talks about this. You tell him to be more vulnerable and then he's more vulnerable and you say, shut up, we're done. (laughs) You know, it's like, I don't want you to be soft anymore. I can't handle that. And so we need to consider our own biases and expectations around how we want men to respond. And I would say the main thing that I want everyone to take away from this is that male loneliness is like at the core of all of this. The idea Mm. of belonging and social connection is everything that we should be striving for as a society. And while if you look at the Lululemon report, if you, you know, start to understand, oh, we thought COVID brought everyone together. Well, yeah, for for some people, but for others, Mm. it just made them feel even more isolated, even more distanced and, and alienated. And the key to our well-being is cohesion, is togetherness. And, you know, I always implore people to pick up their phone, find three people that they haven't spoken to in a while and just drop them a message because God knows they're waiting for it. Absolutely. It's also so interesting that you've personally been fascinated in gender and how that, you know, the differences in what is expected and the social constructs of femininity and masculinity for a long time, but particularly now mentioning things like the traditional protector role, the breadwinner and how that's changing and incomes are changing. Mm. And then COVID, there's just a matrix of so much going on. But how important do you think redefining masculinity is but then also on the flip side if you do become too men should be vulnerable like maybe that Mm. doesn't necessarily maybe that isn't the only kind of answer or change that needs to happen how does that whole concept of masculinity Mm. play out in this landscape so first and foremost i talk about masculinities which is that there are plural constantly contradicting overlapping masculinities within each man And so when I talked about, you know, the fact that I was able to play football and then go and do drama, it's like, and that's moment to moment shifts in the way that I am going from banter to crying, you know, from watching Disney to having a beer with my mates. It's like, how can we understand that there are multiple ways of being and that traditional masculinity, you know, that is represented in stoic self-reliance, you know, keep everything to yourself and, Mm. um, provider, protector, that type of stuff is one of many, many masculinities. 
And importantly, the idea that that type of traditional masculinity is fundamentally toxic, which is, you know, what the the media uses as a term, in my experience, is an extremely dangerous approach because calling out a whole construct as toxic means that instead of attacking certain behaviours and trying to minimise those, it alienates a large group of men who are already pretty fucking angry, who are already yeah. feeling <laughs> on the fringe of society and you're going, go on 4 and 8chan and hide yourself even more because we don't want to hear about any of this stuff. It's yes. very difficult, but the key to my profession is to bring those people out of the darkness and to engage in a conversation with them. You know, the people that we need to engage with most are not the woke dudes of Fitzroy and Bondi. It's not necessary. Mm. They're on board. We need, <laughs> we need to find the other guys who are not engaged, who are feeling victimised, and, and we need to speak to them about why they feel victimised and allow mm. a conversation. And so I talk about flexible masculinity. The idea of being stoic and self-reliant is incredibly important in many situations. It actually is such a protective factor for so many men. I think it's why we don't suffer from depression or anxiety necessarily at the rates that that women do because we are told to have a stiff upper lip every once in a while and it can be useful. If you are a fireman and you are going into a burning building, you cannot break down. You Mm. just can't do that. You (laughs) should come out though and sit down and cry about it and tell us what happened and debrief, you know, time and place is really, really important. And so we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Everyone is so afraid that we're trying to turn men into women. And it's like, no, we've been trying to turn women into men for how many years? It's like there has to be an understanding that there are benefits to all of this. We need to find what is useful and what is harmful. And we need to go have a self-reflective capacity to go, all right, what is going to benefit me in this certain circumstance? And I'm not going to be rigid here. You know, more Mm. yoga for everyone, straight up. We just need flexibility. We need the understanding that in a certain time and place, you don't need to be the same guy. You don't need to be the same guy every fucking time. It's not working for you. And so if you just stick to your guns and continue to respond in the same way, you know, we, we say it's a definition of stupidity. You need to understand that a different situation requires different responses. And so flexible masculinities that are that are rebranded in a way that speak to men not about men not at men Mm. but go hey guys the joe rogans and jordan petersons of the world don't actually have your best interests at heart you know they are just trying to get you to hold on for dear life we have (laughs) another way of being which is focused on understanding what you're capable of and the problem full stop is that no one is telling men what they should be, what they can be. Everyone is saying, don't do that. Don't do this. And so they go, all right, I can't do anything. I can't do anything right. And you wonder why we have no men engaged in the Me Too movement, in climate change, in any of these activism spaces, because they're terrified of saying the wrong thing, of doing the wrong thing, when in fact they should be central. They need to be standing up, you know. Even this this whole abortion situation that's, that's going on at the moment, it's like, how can we have men understanding that they can have a voice in in fairness, you know, in in all of these really important conversations in ways that are actually going to benefit them? And I don't mm. think we're selling it well enough. And that's something that Movember is really trying to do is trying to, to sell health and well-being to men mm. and package it. We call it health by stealth. 
we're going <laughs> to package it in a way that's that's potentially it's got banter, it's funny, it's humorous, whatever it may be. But then you're in, and you can understand that that there are different ways of going about this. Mm. I think two things really stand out to me there. I often, like on International Women's Day, for example, often call out like obviously all the strong women around me, but the male feminists mm. because it's the fathers and the brothers and the best friends. And, you know, I think, as you mentioned, men are half the population. They need to be part of every conversation that affects women and men and everyone. You know, it's it's not that there are forums where they just have to sit out altogether because they're, yeah. they're men. Yeah. They have a huge role to play if, if they can, you know, understand the right language to use and the right approaches to make. But also the idea that when we talk about redefining masculinity, and I've probably done this in past episodes in this week, talked maybe in a way that too much invalidates the typical mm. A-type masculine traits as like move away from those. Like you should be more vulnerable. You should be able to cry. And like, yes, you should be able to do those things, but that doesn't mean you can't also maintain the other parts of you that are part of your identity as a man. There are A-type men out there. It's also incredibly attractive Mm -hmm. when there are, you know, those traits are traditionally what women have gone for. So I like that you're not invalidating That's The whole spectrum of masculinity is still valid. It's just you don't need to live at this and all the time. Exactly. Pick your time, you know, and understand what room you're in. <laughs> Read the room, babes. Read the Read room. Read the room and, and what, <laughs> what is needed, you know. So, yeah, I, I totally believe and I believe fundamentally that men are capable of this. I've witnessed it and the idea that middle-aged men are just beyond our ability to change anything, I just mm. I don't buy into that either. This whole idea that we just need to change the next generation and give up on the boomers, it's like, no. I, I need yeah. to find a way. It's exhausting because I end up at dinner parties with you know, 50 <laughs> to 60-year-old men who are just – but I will not give up on that because they have such an important role with their sons and grandsons as well, and I want them to be the role models that, that we need in society that we do not have. We have Harvey Weinstein and Donald Trump just spamming our newsfeed. Where mm. are the positive male role models that are – everywhere, every day, incredible dads, all anyone wants to watch on on TikTok and Instagram are beautiful dads with their daughters <laughs> doing incredible shit. You know, it's and where is that? We need more of that. Everyone wants to see it. Absolutely. Some of my favorite accounts are the dad and daughter yeah, duos doing like dance moves. <laughs> it's just so wholesome and beautiful. But it's funny that we gravitate so strongly towards that because it feels rare. Mm. Like it feels like that's not as common or like that's particularly different and special. But, yeah. I, I, it's, what does that say about need- society? Because we have this stereotype that men are going to be aloof and Homer Simpson types. And if we continue mm. to perpetuate <laughs> that, you end up with dads being like, oh, should I not be changing the diaper and doing her braids? And, you know, it's like where does this stuff come from and what can we do every time to go, hey, wait a minute, we don't buy into that. Let's do it differently. Yeah. This episode of Seize the A is brought to you by Stan and their exclusive new series, Everything I Know About Love. It's about best friends flourishing, failing and figuring it all out, something I think we can all relate to from our 20s. If you don't believe me, have a listen for yourself. From the producers of Bridget Jones's Diary and Love Actually comes Stan's brand new series, Everything I Know About Love. To the first Friday night in our first London house. Meet your next iconic girl gang. You have always been my most important person. But can their friendship survive when life gets messy? I don't know if we should be that to each other anymore. The brand new series, Everything I Know About Love, now streaming only on Stan. Start your 30-day free trial now. 
Well, it's also interesting you said that there are many different ways to go about this and you are, you know, the embodiment of that in that you're not just doing one thing, you're sort of tackling it through your roles with lots of different organizations. So there's Movember, there's the Black Dog Institute, Men in Mind Project, you're a senior research fellow at Origin at Melbourne Uni. And that's, I mean, I don't even know how you're standing up, but talk us through the different angles and lenses and projects that you're doing and the different ways that they target ways to improve and to reduce the staggering rates of male suicide firstly, but also to to sort of make these shifts on a societal level and also how we could get involved, how anyone listening, if they either have a male in their life who maybe needs these resources or who, who just want to be part of positive change and, and learning how to do better, mm. you know, talk us through all, all your different roles. For sure. So, God, my day-to-day is just who knows what's going to happen. It's pretty fun. A mess, yeah, right? A, mess. <laughs> a hot mess. If anyone wants to help out organizing my diary, please just call. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'll just give out your number. That'll really yeah, help. Yeah. So, yeah, after hours, I do therapy. So you still do your normal do. psychology in, in my consulting? Spa- in my spare time, which I, which I don't know. Wow. I have to. Like it's fundamental to my way of working and it's also, you know, I continue to criticize talking heads. And so I cannot be a talking head without, I can be a talking head, but without <laughs> understanding what is happening on the ground. Like if you are separated from, you know, the boys and men in our community who are angry and who are upset and who are, you know, struggling with constantly changing, you know, there was a huge body image issue that went on during COVID mm. because of Zoom, you know, and everyone was talking about young women and no one was talking about what young men were going through. And so I was like, I need to be seeing clients and, and being clear on on what is happening because I can just continue to tout the same shit over and over. But then I start to just believe that my own voice, you know, is always right and is always <laughs> what's going on. And the best thing is when I do all of this research, I do all of these these papers and, and start to understand what's going on. And then I get into a session with a 16-year-old and they don't care. <laughs> they just don't care. And it's not even that they don't care. It's like I'll have a client who's playing a video game while in session with me with his like yeah. back turned to me grunting and I just get so frustrated. I'm like, I'm supposed to be good at this. <laughs> and he goes, yep, <laughs> sure. Yeah, I'm waiting. <laughs> I'm waiting. You I'm take waiting. your time, Zach. You just take your time. It's so humbling. It's so important as well. And that's so that's what the clinical you know world offers me. So I see a few clients here and there and I only really take on those who have had a really shit time. Mm-hmm. Lots of people have had and sought lots and lots of help along the way with various psychologists. As, as you can probably tell, I don't necessarily fit into the box of, you know, what a psychologist maybe stereotypically looks like. And so I will take on those at risk and those, you know, who have tried almost everything. So that's kind of my criteria for, for new clients because I don't have a lot of time. And so that's what I do after hours. But during the day, I'm at the moustache factory mostly. Movember is misunderstood, I think, by many, you know, as being purely, and everyone always asks, what do you do the other 11 months of the year? And I say, <laughs> grow up my beard to shave it later on. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that gets really old really quickly. Oh, God. It's a lot. <laughs> you need to call it like mo all year yeah, or no. just like rebrand that word so that sure. the misconception is dies forever. <laughs> exactly. But there is so much that is that is going on in our organization because we raise so much money during that month that you know we have to be able to make sure that we are having impact and so i try to be across as much as i can in the mental health and suicide prevention space 
at Movember where we really try to target social connection. We really, you know, focus heavily on we've got this new program looking at men building better relationships and, and, you know, trying to give men the skills and the communication ability to get on top of this stuff before shit hits the fan. Mm. We've got a, a tool called Movember Conversations, which is, you know, really focused on, all right, you've got a guy who doesn't want to talk to you, but you know he's struggling. What are some conversation starters to go and start to, you know, actually interrogate what's going on and, and chat with him about it in a way that's hopefully going to be male-friendly, for instance? And most importantly, my program called Men in Mind is focused on upskilling psychologists, counsellors, social workers, anyone that you're going to come across in the mental health space to better understand male distress, to better understand yeah. male suicidality, to create a space that men want to be in because, you know, we've got staggering rates of dropout from treatment. It's above like 40% wow. of men leave treatment and don't <gasps> tell anyone what's going on. Exactly. So think about how much money and time it takes to get every guy in. And yeah. they come in the door and then we just leave them and hope that it works out. And this was my initial pitch to November when I got the first job. I, I said to them, you keep telling men to open up, to seek help, to do more, and then you just hope for the best when they get in there. Yeah. You need to make sure that the care that they're receiving hits the spot. And so I upskill, I train practitioners across the country and hopefully soon enough across the world to to know what to look out for, to question their own gender and how it interacts with the client, to know the interactions between masculinity and depression, and to just start to really push harder at engaging their male clients and realizing that this is an opportunity, a missed opportunity really often. And there is a really short window that you can mm. connect with these guys. And so don't go and get a you know, list of stuff that you need to tick off. Sit there and be human with him. You know, mm. understand what's going on and, and connect with him in a way that, that he hasn't been able to previously. So that's what happens at, at Movember. I'm very lucky to get to do opportunities like this and, and work with Lululemon and all of our awesome partners across the board, just trying to bring a bit of depth and humanity to this conversation. You know, I've got my own lived experience with depression and suicidality in my family. And it's something that, you know, while it's not necessarily why I got into this work. It's definitely something that continues to drive me, including, you know, all of the other men that I get to the privilege to work with every day. You know, there is a lot of pain out there mm -hmm. and I'm not here to just share that with everyone. And, you know, I'm, I'm here to share the hope that there is another way of being. There are so many opportunities for, for change and for growth and for connection. And so, that's what Movember affords me, a community. You know, we've got millions of men who we connect with over a joke. But after that, God, the stuff that happens throughout the year, the incredible, you know, we've got ultra marathon runners that I get to go and talk with. We've got incredible community members who are just willing to put their, their heart on their sleeve and share what they've been through. I just really hope that we're going to get to the point where we don't need our ambassadors to be those who have lost a friend or a family member to suicide. Yeah. There's something about the men's health space that means men only get on board once they've lost a mate. Yeah, That doesn't make sense to me. I don't get the lack of proactivity here. There is so much waiting for crisis, waiting for disaster, and that's across the board. If you look at help-seeking, guys are only going to you know, attend ED or a psychologist when everything is up in the air and they've lost it. Yeah. Why can't we see this as something to do preemptively, as 
you know, getting ahead of the potholes before your tire bursts and mm. it's raining and you have to get out and, you know, I just don't understand why we can't have men realising that there is so much opportunity to have this conversation when you're well. You know, recovery begins when you're well. The idea that there is, you know, everything's fine and we're in, we're in prevention stage. It's like since birth, everyone has had traumatic events happen. <laughs> Let's be honest, life is fucking When hard. did it start for you? Um, I came out of the womb and it was all downhill from there. I saw the doctor and I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> what is that moustache? Um, <laughs> so life is tough. And, yeah. and, it's, and it's always better out than in. A conversation is not the end point by any means, but it is a great starting point. And so I, I do really hope that we're going to get to a point where, you know, we get so many guys on board who are going, oh, this shit is important. Yeah. And I've, I've felt this and I might not be feeling it right now, but someone else probably is. And so I'm going to do it not because somebody has passed away, sadly. I'm going to do it so that someone doesn't. Mm. Yeah, I think that it's so reactive. Like it is so common that the people you see out in society, the men you see out in the society really shouting from the rooftops are someone who have seen it happen, not someone who have seen it happen outside, you know, heard a story and then become passionate. It's because it's in their wheelhouse and they can see that it's real. A couple of things that came up in previous episodes on this topic that I found really useful as a Mo sister in terms of making it easier for it to be a more proactive process was even little things like it's a mass generalization, of course, to say all men feel this way, but that little things like having a conversation, and this might be for psychology generally, but having deep conversations, why do they always happen in cars? Mm -hmm. It's because you're not looking at mm -hmm. each other. Why do they happen when you're walking or when you're cycling with a friend or when you're doing some other thing where you're not looking at each other across a table? And it's because it's a lot easier to open up when you don't have to make eye contact. Sure. There's like a buffer that allows you to be a bit vulnerable and not have to be like, even though a car is a really intimate space. Mm. Sometimes, you know, I find when I want to bring up something with Nick or I've noticed he's having, you know, he's had a really, really challenging family situation over the past sort of five years with brain cancer. And he struggles a lot with the masculinity of opening up. So I know don't bring that up at breakfast mm. when you're facing each other. It's never going to work. Do it in the car. And a small, like a tiny small tweak of understanding his psychology around vulnerability and the buffer that a car and him also concentrating on something else, like your client being on mm. the game mm. while they're talking mm. to you, that buffer I think helps a lot of men feel like they're doing something else, like almost trick themselves into being vulnerable and not feel like it's weird. That has helped us enormously. So like small tweaks about timing mm. and forum can be enormously helpful. Are there any other small things like that or wording or the way you bring things up that you recommend to people who don't know how to help start a conversation? Yeah, that idea that they need to fit into our box is something that has been so problematic for so long, whether it's in therapy, friendships, relationships. It's like, no, 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 this is how I do vulnerability, so why mm. don't you match me, you know? Yes. I, I sit down and I'm going to talk to you one-on-one -on -one for an hour and what do you mean you're not willing to engage? How dare you? The idea that you get into Nick's psychology, you know, and you go, all right, there's a time and a place for this and I need to understand that if I push it at the wrong time, that's really disadvantageous. It's really going to get me, you know, further away from my goal rather than going, oh, 
he doesn't care. He doesn't, you know, think about this stuff. He doesn't want to engage. He does, you know, all of those ideas are really not helpful in that in that setting. Rather trying to get into his his shoes and go, what's going on for him? Why might he not want to? And so we talk a lot about shoulder to shoulder sharing it at Movember. Mm. You know, instead of eye to eye, it's shoulder to shoulder. And oh, it's an actual word. You knew what was happening. <laughs> yeah, I just like dropped that, yeah. like pretended that I didn't know everyone. I was like, yeah, what's that thing where you just kind of like stand next to each other with your shoulders kind of near each other? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't know that was an actual term. Yeah, and this is the thing. So many people have this like implicit understanding, but there is so much research that underpins lots of this stuff. And so, you know, for instance, I've got a ping pong table in my in my clinic. If your hands are busy, that's where men's sheds came from, the idea that you can do carpentry or or you know, baking pies. We've got we've got a pie baking group of old mates at uh, at Movember that we fund, and it's incredible. <gasps> I know it's beautiful, and there are so many different opportunities where you can get guys, and it's not trying to trick them, you know. It's just getting them into a comfortable space to to open up, and they may not describe things in ways that make sense to you. It may not be as deep for you as it is for them, and that's something mm-hmm. that I've really had to come to terms with. I've been in, in sessions or in chats with various people along the way and they feel like they are unraveling in front of me. And I'm like, you haven't even touched the sides. Yeah. <laughs> you know? This is a Monday for Seriously. me. Seriously. This is just Monday 9 a.m. We need to understand that it's like it looks different in different people. And so, you know, always when you're starting a conversation with a guy, the idea of burdensomeness, which is a, a tough word to say, but it's the idea of, they often feel like they are a burden and that's why they won't open up about what's going on because they don't want to put it on you. Little do they know mm. that if they actually just release it, everyone will be a lot better off. But, mm. you know, that's another step. <laughs> so you never want to say, you know, what you're doing to me is making me feel blah, 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 blah. It's making me feel worse. You're, you know, you need to open up. I don't know what's going on. You're stressing me out. You know, that type of, of stuff is really not useful. The key often to getting guys to talk is self-disclosure. You know, right. no one no one actually says, you're always trying to get a guy to talk because he's struggling with something. You don't ever go, oh, wait a second, I've got my own difficulties and maybe if I just share them, <laughs> something might come good there. Yeah. And doing it, especially if you're in a relationship, if you share a lot with your partner, you want to see the differences between true and performative vulnerability. You know, yes. I do a lot yeah. of performative vulnerability. <laughs> I can just rattle this shit off and everyone's like, oh, my God, you know, versus saying something that I haven't thought through and packaged up with a bow and offered to them in a really raw and authentic way, that's what hits and that's what they know. They can Everyone can tell the difference between the stuff and that's when you end up getting true raw vulnerability from someone is, is when you offer something to them as well. Something that happens a lot in the men's mental health space that I'm hoping is going to change as well is... All of the role models are saying, I suffered with depression. I had anxiety. I know all of these guys and they're not done. No one is done. We're on a constant journey of ups and downs. We live with depression or anxiety. It is something that that is a part of us and it's something that we can learn to love. It's often a superpower, you know. My anxiety Mm -hmm. is the thing that drives much of my work in many ways, but it's also the thing that allows me to be empathetic and care for others and and want more for people. And so continuing to demonize this thing and wanting it out of our way 
it means that all the rugby players who we're so lucky to have on board often talk about, I overcame this journey, and they're only willing to share it once they think they're past it. They'll never share it when they're in the depths. They'll never share, you know, when they feel like they're at the start of, of another bout of something. And that means that lots of guys are looking out at this then and going, oh, he got over it, but I'm feeling shit now. So how am I supposed to do that? And so a call out to all the dads, especially when we're talking about experiences, you know, when we're talking about sharing with our, with our kids, it's really problematic when you go, oh, when I was a teenager, I felt like I had no idea what was going on. We still have no fucking idea what's going on. <laughs> NFI, man, yeah. NFI. Let's, let's be clear about that. And so sharing, you know, there's this idea that when you're offering advice that you need to know exactly how you've gotten through it. It's a constant journey. It's constantly changing. And if we can get men to understand that there are these ups and downs and to talk about it in that way, it'll alleviate so much distress for guys who are going, I felt good yesterday, but I'm not today. I'm not allowed that though, because I thought I beat mm. it. There's this constant, mm. I overcame, you know, and this, this survivor idea. So I'm hoping that we're going to get to the point where we can have this sharing of conversation that is based in reality, based yeah. in the current moment, and that is focused on, you know, belief that we can see this as a journey, not to get over to live with. Yeah. And something else you reminded me of, I don't think I've ever realized that this was a realization, but that I've been doing increasingly is knowing not to go, similarly to knowing how to like the timing and that I won't get what I want either. If I choose the forum that I would like, then I think that's going to give me what mm. I want. Because if I was talking about what I was going through, that would help me, but I'm not going to get the right result either if I pick the wrong timing. And and that links to the idea of like, you can't go into a conversation like this for your own gratification. Because mm. I often go into it thinking, I want to feel better that I have checked that he is okay. Yeah. And so if I don't get the answer that I want or the, the same wording or expression that I would give, sometimes I'm like, well, more, like more. And he's like, I've given you the most expressive I ever am. So if you kind of let go of your gratification, you don't need to leave the conversation mm. feeling like you've ticked your box of checking on them or, you know, they don't need to give you the same language that you might give them back for it to still be a really productive conversation. And that's helped me as well go, okay, in my world, that's a small step, but I've been in therapy for like 18 years. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's new to this and he has a different way of saying things and that's a huge opening up for him so I can leave it there. Whereas I will sometimes go, okay, more though, more though. And then that just makes him like, well, I'm never going to open up again because you won't accept what I say. Yeah. So that's also helped enormously to change my metrics for my mental health chats with him because mine are like hours mm. and like deep and, you know, expressive and like he's just never going to be like that. But the idea that he has to be, the idea that that is necessarily right for someone like him. You know? Yeah. It's like if he can do it in three minutes, go for gold. How good is that? I wish I could do it in three minutes. <laughs> and that's the thing. It's like it looks and sounds different, but especially if he knows what your expectations are, he'll just start feeding it to you and that, yes. that's even worse because that's that's when you end up with a mask on. And so yeah. that idea of accepting, you know, the truth of what they're offering to you, you know, when someone <laughs> is not offering you, you know, an honest answer for all intents and purposes, but you want to get to the point where you can have that shared language with someone mm. that looks really different and that molds to them. You know, that's what love is really. It's the ability to go, all right, he's offering something that looks totally different to what I thought, but I'm going to come to the table. 
and I'm going to sit with that and I'm going to accept it for what it is. And then he will come to me when the time is right. And so I do a lot of that where I just do little check-ins with people and then you always find two weeks later, someone just gives me a call and goes, actually, this is what's happening. And I gave gave them the space and that's what's really important. Well, I have gone over time already because I found this just so fascinating, so interesting to, I'm fascinated by human psychology and I think getting into it with an expert in this area helps even just these conversations and hearing language and new concepts and new approaches, I think helps other people start thinking about it a lot more in their own mind too. So thank you so much for joining. But I just have a couple of finisher questions that are bringing it back to you really. And, you know, the idea that you also have to find joy even if your work gives you an enormous amount of satisfaction and yay, particularly when it is in an area that's very outwardly focused and that is a journey that you could get to the end of your lifetime and still feel like you'd scratch 1% of this, you know, this is an ongoing thing. It's not a, a binary yes or no, fixed or not fixed societal issue. You know, the irony of running any wellness business is your yours often falls to the bottom mm-hmm. of the list. So how do you play or make time for you that's separate to psychology and humanity and mm. you know other the others the other you know everything that's not looking after <laughs> yourself <laughs> and do you sometimes push the boundary mm. and find you burn out and, and end up in compassion fatigue or normal fatigue boy oh boy yes yeah the past two years have been have been rough definitely i felt extremely productive but i am also very much reliant upon others energy and so not having that was was very difficult yeah, even last week, you know, I went to a conference that was a, a suicide prevention conference and there was a lot of lived experience. There's a lot of a lot of people who had lost family members and multiple family members to suicide. And I have a narrative that I'm like, yep, this is fine. I can do this. You know, everything's mm. sweet. And I'm then, passionate. Yeah, exactly. It's good. And by the third day, I was like, I can't handle this, you know? Yeah. And so I just went to the beach. <laughs> <laughs> and I always put up stuff on Instagram of me at the beach and everyone's like, oh, you're always at the beach. And it's like, no, that's just what I decide to to share because I think it's really important to, to know. I don't think I'm the best at always finding those, those boundaries before they creep up on me mm. because we always have this idea is like, no, I'm the helper. And so I also have a bit of a self-martyrdom situation, like <laughs> a bit of suffering is okay. And so I'll push myself oh, yeah. a bit further than I, than I maybe should. But strangely, one-on-one therapy always brings me back doing a little bit of it but, you know, I used to do seven, eight hours a day. That was far too much. And now I only have a few a few sessions a week. But just getting out of my own head, you know, it's such a privilege to be able to to sit in someone else's life for a little bit, mm. you know, and it's it's kind of selfish in many ways, but, but the ability to solve someone else's problems rather than my own is an enjoyable one. But I run. It's a horrible answer to all of those who hate exercise, but God, <laughs> it, you never want to come across as that like Tony Robbins, just go. Yeah. I wake up at 3 a.m. and I do an ice bath and then I, I run. Do love it's a cold so shower. easy. I do. It's horrible. <laughs> I know. No, you've got to have your thing. Yeah. But running is like, it's, it takes a certain amount to get to the point where my mind shuts off and shuts up. Mm-hmm. But just the, the feeling of my body in, in movement and in motion, just allowing things to, to loosen, I guess, in some ways, you know, and obviously swimming also does the job and nature full stop is, is just, just the best, but so restorative, love, love a good laugh. That will always get me through a day. Okay. That's a really interesting one. What does, you know, a director of Movember laugh at? Like, what is your, other than friends, obviously, (laughs) 
What are your guilty pleasures? I assume you have some. Please tell me you have some. Yeah, what are my guilty pleasures? Like is it dumb comedy? Yeah, I love The Simpsons. Okay. Like old school Simpsons. A bit of Family Guy still as well. It's weird. I don't know how. I love Family Guy. I always wanted to laugh at stuff. Like stuff that makes no sense is always hilarious to me. It's like where did that come from? How did this happen? And I've got two friends who are pretty big comedians as well and they um, they keep me constantly entertained, which is always good. But, no, it's like that idea that I am just some ivory tower white coat dude <laughs> is just absolute bullshit. <laughs> so anything and everything makes me laugh and just trying to be just constantly engaged with humanity and disengaging from the sad state of politics and other things every once in a while and just – Having a yarn with some some friends is is just the best. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Second last question: Three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in conversation. Oi. Okay, I do have a weird middle name. It starts with an E, but doesn't sound like an E. It's it's Eugene. Oh, yeah. I like Eugene. I know. I think I would change to to Doctor Eugene Seidler because I just feel like that's way more. It's got depth, you know. It does have yeah. depth. It has a real depth. But you make yourself sound a lot older. Yeah, that's true. Zach is very like up and coming. Eugene Levy you know? just like ear hair. <laughs> <laughs> you need bigger eyebrows yeah, no. also. Well, they're getting there. Don't worry. Do you watch Schitt's Creek? Yeah, yeah. Oh, nice. Okay, of good. Course. It's <laughs> The Baby <laughs> is like one of my favorite shows ever. So good. That I laugh at. Of course. You got it. So there's that. I also have a, a tattoo that I don't think many people have, have seen. Which is what a, is that? A life ring. <gasps> to remember right on the bicep right now, right i love it bicep. gotta to, got to remember to throw it out every once in a while yeah get those guns out, get guns out. exactly <laughs> that's the second one and what do i do it oh god you don't want to hear what my i'm, I'm I, I told you i'm just the worst nightmare at a dinner party i just amazing just, gr- just grill people endlessly about uh tell me about your childhood trauma please <laughs> I want, I want more of that. Can we have a cup of wine, please? I see. This is what you're doing now. Let's dig a little deeper into that. Yeah. Like this deflection thing. What, what's happening Where there? Where did your partner just go? Are you happy? With yeah. yeah. <laughs> Are you deeply satisfied in your relationship? It's too good. <laughs> oh, very last question since I love quotes so much. What's your favourite quote? So I've actually got it on my, on my desk over there. I think it's by Anthony Hopkins. It may be have stolen, may be stolen by him, but it's today is the tomorrow. I was so worried about yesterday. I love that one. Yeah, it's so good because that's always that's just everything. It's like the the key, and with my students and you know and and everyone that I work with, it's constantly trying to understand that the anxiety that you're going through now will always dissipate in the moment when you're just doing the thing that you love. And so I try my best to just not preempt things anymore and to just sit with where I'm at and realize, and and I think the key is, is respecting your ability and knowing that you're going to be okay. So my greatest skill, I think in many ways is getting up on stage with no notes and talking for an hour <laughs> and, and I black out straight up. I have no idea. I'm in a fugue state. I have no idea. If I sit down and watch a recording, I'm like, what? I have no idea what was just said. Wow. And so I just, the more I do that now, I'm pushing myself into uncomfortable situations means that I I don't need to worry about what's coming tomorrow because I know that I'll handle it when it comes. Mm. And whether that's, you know, resilience or some other buzzword going around at the moment, I just think that we need to we need to trust ourselves a bit more. 
Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I also love that concept of, you know, there are a certain amount of emotions in your day that are inevitable, mm-hmm. like you're supposed to feel a certain amount, but you don't have to add any extra onto that. So another one that's that I love, I can't remember who it's by, is that no amount of anxiety will change the future and no amount of regret will change the past. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, feel the emotions about right now that you need to feel, but the extra ones that are about tomorrow Later. or yesterday... No. Like they, they're a waste. Exactly. There's a finite amount of energy you've got. Like stick with the stuff that you actually have to, to worry about. For sure. Well, thank you so much, Zach, Eugene, whatever you want to go by from now on <laughs> for joining us. This was a very enlightening and empowering conversation, I think, to help anyone listening understand the landscape a bit better and contributing to us all taking steps forward to, you know, to learning the best ways to help men's health grow and improve year on year and thank you for everything that you do thanks a lot for having me what a legend of a man doing such amazing work for men's mental health i've included links to his page the lululemon global Wellbeing report and other resources that we mentioned in the show notes please do check them out and as we mentioned never hesitate to reach out for help i'm so grateful to have had some of dr zach's very scarce time and i think this was such a thought-provoking conversation so please help thanking for his time and share it further by screenshotting as you do so well and tagging at zach seidler and us so we can keep growing the neighborhood as far and wide as possible. In the meantime, I hope you are all looking after yourselves and seizing your yay.